Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. to another episode. It is so exciting to see people listening from across the world. We really appreciate you listening from wherever you are. And a big thank you to those that have checked us out on social media and left comments. Yeah, we've totally loved interacting with you guys. So much fun. But before we start, everyone who knows me knows how much I love to watch scary movies. Melissa, not so much. Nope, not at all. Unless I force her to watch them. Oh, that is true. She forces me all the time. What happens, though, when someone becomes inspired by the events that take place in a horror film that they watch? Shockingly, this is what happens in today's case. Two teenage boys, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik, plan and carry out a murder based on the movie Scream. I convinced Melissa to watch Scream with me before telling her about this case today. Like you gave me a choice. (laughs) I actually didn't. I just showed up at her house. She said it was research. (laughs) It was pertinent to the case. We do our own research for each of our cases, and we don't tell each other any details of the true crimes that we research until we sit down to record and tell you listeners at the same time. Oh, it's always exciting to find out. It is. And that way our reactions are authentic, too. However, I did want her to know what the Scream movie was about before telling her the story. And then I have just a little fun fact before I actually start the case. The first film, Scream, was released on December 20th, 1996, and became the highest grossing slasher film in the world until the release of Halloween in 2018. Now, in the 1996 Scream movie, they refer to Jamie Lee Curtis as the Scream Queen, and she actually stars in the Halloween 2018 film that removed Scream from its number one grossing slasher film spot. Oh, she really is the Scream Queen. She is. <laughs> it was fun to see her in the background. Yeah, they're actually watching a movie with Jamie Lee Curtis in it. And they're talking about how she's the queen. And she's like, yes, I am. I'm going to take you out of your number one spot because I'm the Scream Queen. Oh, it's a freaky movie. You'd think that because it came out when I was a teenager that I wouldn't be scared of it anymore. But no, I was totally scared again. She's quite hilarious to watch when we watch movies. Yeah, I watch the movie and Christy watches me and laughs. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so into the case. Brian and Tori have pretty normal childhoods growing up. They both come from really loving families. Brian Lee Draper was born on March 21st, 1990 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was adopted at birth by Pam and Carrie Draper. He spent most of his childhood in Utah, but then moved to Pocatello, Idaho with his family. It is in Idaho where he meets and becomes friends with Tori Adamchik. Pocatello. Pocatello. Did I say Tella? Pocatello. Pocatello, Idaho. So it is in Idaho where he meets and becomes friends with Tori Adamchik. Tori Michael Adamchik was born on June 14th, 1990, right in Pocatello, Idaho, to his parents, Shannon and Sean Adamchik. Both boys attended Pocatello High School together. At the time of the murder, they were juniors and both 16 years old. So for us Canadians, I think that's grade 11. A junior? A junior? We have a lot of U.S. listeners. Hopefully we got that right. I think a junior is grade 11. Pocatello is a smaller U.S. city with under 55,000 people in 2006 when this murder took place and was considered a prominently religious area to live in. And it still is. It's still prominently a religious area. I think it only grew about 2,000 more people. 
Oh, so it hasn't time. changed much. And the residents felt safe. It was just a quiet religious town. Nothing really bad was happening there. So people felt pretty good about living there. As a teen, Brian said he felt lonely and he disturbingly looked up to the shooters of the Columbine school shooting. He said the shooters were noticed and took control of the whole school. And he too wanted to be noticed. So is he power hungry too then? They're both of them are fame hungry. But you know what, Brian? There's better ways to get noticed. For sure. Tori was obsessed with horror movies, especially the Scream franchise. In the Scream movie, two boys go on a murder rampage killing classmates, but first they would terrorize them. And there's many parallels to the movie with what takes place in this case. Oh, I'm already getting a little bit freaked out. But Melissa actually, in the movie, she had it figured out right at the beginning. She was suspicious of both of the boys that actually in the movie were I can spot a bad guy from miles away, especially when I'm walking down the street now. I'm like, you're a bad guy and you're a bad guy. <laughs> it's so true. The more of these cases that we research. I was in the McDonald's lineup to get a pop because it's cheap in the summertime for McDonald's pop. I was on my way home and there was this <laughs> poor, I'm sorry to this poor guy in front of me getting a coffee while it was raining outside and it was all dark out. I was like, this guy might stab me on the way to my car. <laughs> And he was probably the sweetest, nicest guy. Definitely becoming more skeptical of the human race. Everybody's a dirtbag. Yep. Everyone has that potential. So Tori would watch scary movies and take notes on how not to get caught. Which they do. Yeah, which they do in the movie, too. Both boys had a love of scary movies and were interested in recording their own. A fellow classmate said that they were writing a script about people getting murdered. Somehow, their plans turned from writing a script to legitimately wanting to start killing people. Brian and Tori compiled a list of the people that they planned to kill. Apparently, the boys had set out to kill numerous times prior to the fateful night that we discuss, but each time their plans got ruined. Throughout this case, the boys record themselves with a camcorder leading up to the murder as well as right afterwards. I was able to find actual transcripts of some of these recordings that the police find after the murder, and I'll read parts of it, but you can see smaller clips of the actual videos online. Oh, and those are always the creepiest to watch. Oh, it is. It's Yeah, it will up the creep mm. factor for sure if you decide to go watch those. There's a lot of swearing in some of the clips, and I'm not going to read the swears in full. We're trying to keep this a clean murder talk show. Oh, yeah. As we talk about brutal murders, <laughs> all the gory <laughs> details, let's keep it clean. But we're going to try to keep the language PG anyways. <laughs> That's right. Not the content, just the language. Yeah, exactly. So the day before the murder on September 21st, 2006, there is a video of Tori and Brian driving down the street at 8.36 p.m., Tori is driving and Brian is recording from the passenger seat. It is in this video that police learn that they had picked out their victim, proving premeditation. Oh, so creepy. In the video, Brian says, We found our first victim and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddart and her friends. And he says this almost cheerfully. Oh my. Yeah. These transcripts can be a little tough, so I'll just give everyone a little warning. But before I continue with the transcript, I thought this would be a good time to tell you about Cassie, the girl who they've chosen for their first victim, and the situation leading up to that frightful night. Yeah, how do you get on a murderer's list? They say she's the perfect victim. And she's their friend. Yeah, that's... It's not even someone that they don't like. They are friends with Cassie. So it's not because they they have some secret vendetta against her? No, not at all. Oh, well, I think it was a crime of opportunity. They picked her out ahead of time. But there's a reason they picked her. So they create the opportunity then? No. Okay. I'll I'll tell you now. No, 
I'll tell you now. So you know how in the Scream movie, the very first victim, she's in this house like out in the country. Oh, nobody's around. Yes. They found out that Cassie is going to be in a similar situation where she's going to be all alone in this house in the middle of nowhere. And it's oh. a perfect opportunity. Was she babysitting? No, she wasn't babysitting. Okay. It always creeps me out. Yeah, she was house sitting. When they're babysitting? Okay. Cassie Jo Stoddart was born on December 21st, 1989 in Pocatello and was also a 16-year-old junior at the same high school. She was a good kid. She didn't drink or do drugs. She was a straight-A student and was described as trustworthy and responsible. Oh, the perfect victim. So she was a beautiful girl and had a lot of friends, including her murderers. They were her friends as well. Cassie had an older sister and a younger brother, whom she was reportedly best friends with, her younger brother. He described her as his role model, even though they were close in age. They were only like a year and a half apart from what I read. She lived with her mom and stepdad, but would also stay with her dad and grandparents that lived nearby. At the time of her death, Cassie had a boyfriend named Matt Beckham, and they had been dating for about five months. Cassie was trying to save to buy herself a car, like a lot of 16-year-olds. So she was doing whatever she could to earn money, which was mostly babysitting. So she was babysitting. She did babysit a lot. But she's not (laughs) babysitting on the night in question. That's a different horror movie where they call. You probably haven't seen that I haven't seen it, no. It's also new to me. Most of our listeners will. Where they call and keep calling, have you checked on the children? Have you checked on the children? And then she finds out that he's calling from inside the house. So was her boyfriend at this house? Sorry. Melissa, can I I tell the story? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he's at the house. This is how I guessed who the murderers were from the very beginning. Because I was like, is it that guy? Is it that guy? Oh, man. That guy looks creepy. It's that guy. That's her way of doing it. She just accuses everybody. Then, of course, she's right. You just really want to know. I just jumping in there. Probably because we just watched Scream and it's all fresh in your mind. You want to know how it's going to parallel. Yeah. How much is it the same? A lot of things are the same. Okay. Not exactly, but a lot of things are similar. So Cassie often babysat for her aunt and uncle, Allison and Frank Contreras. Their home where the murder takes place was on Whispering Cliffs Drive in the northeast Bannock County. Allison and Frank lived on a larger property, so their neighbors weren't super squished together. So like I said, it was definitely a secluded area. Her aunt and uncle had asked Cassie if she would house sit for the weekend while they were out of town. So from Friday night to Sunday night. Cassie would also be taking care of their pets, three cats and two dogs. So Brian and Tori must have known that Cassie was house-sitting. In the transcripts from the night before, it continues with Brian saying, We'll let you, and then he laughs. We'll find out if she has friends over, if she is going to be alone in a big dark house in the middle of nowhere, and then he laughs again. How perfect can you get? I mean, like, holy crap, dude. And Tori says, I'm horny just thinking about it. (gasps) Brian Hell yeah, we're gonna effing kill her and her friends, and we're gonna keep on moving. I heard some news about, and then they leave out the name out of the transcript because he mentions another student. Mm. So to protect her, they leave out her name. So we hear about this other girl. She's gonna be home alone from six to seven. So we might kill her and drive over to Cassie's thing and scare the crap out of her and then kill them one by effing one. Hell yeah. Tori says, why one by one? Why can't it be a slaughterhouse? Brian says, two by two and three by three, because we've got to keep it classy. These guys are messed up. Yeah, totally. So Tori agrees. He says, keep it classy. Brian, so yeah, it's going to be extra fun. Tori says, you're evil and starts laughing. Brian says, yes, I am. So are you, dude. Evil, evil. They continue to discuss and brag about how bad they are. And then Brian says, we are sick psychopaths who get their pleasure off killing other people. 
like our psychopath. Yeah, like it's something to be looked up to. Tori says, that sounds good, baby. Brian says, we're going to go down in history. We're going to be just like Scream, except in real life terms. Tori says, that sounds good, baby. This is why you don't watch horror movies. Well, as of yet, I haven't killed anybody <laughs> after watching a horror movie, but I don't take notes either while I'm watching. Have you guys been listening to our podcast? Christy's always got the best ideas about how to kill somebody. <laughs> or hide a body. <laughs> but then they go on to discuss other serial killers and how some of them are amateurs compared to them. Even though they haven't killed anybody yet. Right. But they're going to be the greatest serial killers ever they're talking oh, about, right? That's your like typical teenage, like, I'm the best. Nothing oh, yeah. could ever happen to me. It almost sounds like guys like hyping up before a football game or something, right? Like, we're oh. going to kick their butts. We're going to be great. You know, absolutely that kind of thing. But yeah. instead, it's about this murdering spree that they have planned. Tori also talks about how killing people shouldn't be illegal because when you tell someone not to do something, it makes them want to do it more. And at the end of the conversation of this part, Brian says, murder is power. Murder is freedom. Goodbye. So had something happened in their childhood that they were like, no, were they no outcast? Did they get, they felt lonely. Like they weren't like super popular, but they weren't bullied and abused and they had no signs of serial killers. So why did they want all this power then? Or was it more the fame? They just wanted to be famous. Well, I think both. To me, it seemed like they were kind of feeding off of each other and like hyping this up. Peer pressure, only the worst kind. Yeah, I don't even know if it was peer pressure. It was just, they thought they were cool. And But do you think they were going off of one another? Like the one guy says, oh, well, we should do this. And the other guy like has to one-up it and be like, yeah, 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 we could do this. That's what I think. Okay. And at the end, Brian does kind of address that as well. Okay. But basically like dirt bags. We've got two 16-year-old dirt bags right here. Crazy. So there's more on the video that is found this time of the morning of the murder. So September 22nd, 2006. So they're actually like time logging. They are. They're like documenting it. And how did they think they weren't going to get caught? They don't think they're going to get caught. They think this is just going to bring them to their fame. So it's kind of like that case in Canada where the guy posted his actual murder online and didn't think he was going to get caught. Right. These guys are crazy. Well, when you're 16, you think you're invincible. You're never going to get into an accident. You're never going to get arrested. Like nothing's bad is going to happen to you. And they felt like they were in control. And that was one of the things that Brian said he looked up to the Columbine shooters is because they had total control and everyone noticed them. And so they thought this is our way of getting noticed. Find a different way. Yeah. Do better, boys. So there's more on the video that is found. First, Brian records Cassie at her locker at the beginning of the school day and asks her to say hi to the camera, which she does. And this is so disturbing. She had no idea, but they wanted to catch her alive on the camera that morning. That is totally creepy. Okay, they are psychopaths then, because how do you even approach somebody knowing that you're planning to kill them and act all normal? Well, like they said in the earlier transcript, like sacrifices have to be made. Later in the day, there is a video of Brian and Tori sitting at a table at the school trying to discuss and write down their plan in front of the camera. And so I'll read, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read segments of that. So Brian, we're not going to get caught. We're just going to discuss our murder at school. Right. With how many people around. There is parts where it says that they start talking quiet and they're worried that a teacher, like, so they kind of pause when like a teacher comes by to make sure that nobody overhears them. Oh, these guys are brainiacs. And they're doing it like a documentation. Like if you were going on some wild expedition and you wanted to vlog it and record, like this is kind of how they're treating this. So Brian says, 
September 22nd, 2006. We're skipping our fourth hour class. We're writing our plan right now for tonight. It's going to be cool. Tori says, we, Tori and Brian, and then he starts writing some stuff down. He says, we're making our death list right now for when, for actually tonight. Brian says, yeah, if you're watching this, we're probably deceased. Hopefully this will go smoothly and we can get our first kill done and then keep going. Sorry, were they planning on killing themselves? Well, I don't know. Because what did they mean by we will be deceased? Probably like the only way you're going to get a hold of this is if you kill us to get it. Oh, probably that would be my assumption. Death row or, you know, shot by the police or something like that. Okay. So then Tori says, for you future serial killers watching this tape, and then they both laugh. Hopefully you don't have like eight or nine failures like we have. (gasps) Right? Yeah. Eight or nine failures? Yep. So they've attempted this before? Yep. And they're going to explain that right here in the transcripts. Oh. So then Brian says, good luck. And Tori says, yeah, we've probably tried maybe 10 times, but they've never been home alone. Or when we have, their parents show up. Thank goodness. Yeah. And that is so creepy too. How many kids? Well, they say maybe 10 times. Oh, now I don't want to leave my kids home alone. Yeah. Went to their friends' houses, right? Like they're hanging out with people and like, okay, well, maybe we can get this person. That is crazy. And then the parents come home or there's too many people there. So they actually have control of themselves then. It's not like they're actually losing control. They Oh, are... no, this is premeditated. This is planned. They're writing it out. It's not like an urge for them. Like you, we talk about some other sociopaths or some other serial killers, and it's like almost they can't contain their urges. Like they just act out on them. But they are totally making sure they're not getting caught. And oh, yeah. They just think this is like fun. Dirtbag. Yeah, totally. Doesn't it almost seem more disturbing that it's not their brains that are messed up? Like they're actually just thinking this is for entertainment? Yeah. I find it so much more disturbing. It really is. I agree. So Brian says, as long as you're patient, you know, and we were patient and now we're getting paid off because our victim's home alone. So we got her, our plan all worked out now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. We have to stick with the plan and she's perfect. So she's going to die. And then they laugh. No regard for human life at all. So a couple of things that I thought after reading this was, again, like how lucky those other students were that their plan never panned out for them. And you can tell that they want recognition and fame by documenting all of this on video. And all I have to say is make better goals in life, people. Oh, for sure. Now I'm going to jump into what happens on the frightful final night of Cassie's life. This is not cool at all. Why are people so messed up that they want to do things just for entertainment purposes? There's really no good excuse for murder, but for entertainment purposes? Right. It's awful. I don't think they're thinking long term about how this is going to affect Cassie's family or themselves. It's just kind of a perfect storm. So Cassie goes to her aunt and uncle's house like planned. She got permission to allow her boyfriend, Matt, to hang out at the house with her. So Matt gets there around 6 o'clock p.m. Matt invited their two friends, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchick, to the house as well. And so I don't know. Did he know anything? I don't think that he did. Or did they Um, like kind of trick him into inviting them over? I'm assuming that they were talking and, you know, because they're friends and like, oh, what are you doing? Like, because I think they had heard that Cassie was going to be house sitting there. And I don't think at 16, it would be very hard to get yourself invited to come over. No. Okay. But regardless, they, they were get, invited over. Yeah. Matt invites the two of them over to the house. And Cassie wasn't thrilled about this because she'd only gotten permission for Matt to come over, not these other boys. And she was a rule follower. A she good was. Girl. She was really responsible. 
And that'll prove to be her final demise, actually, is how responsible she is, which I'll get to. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. So Brian and Tori arrive at the house between 6.30 and 7. Cassie gives the boys a tour of the house, and then they all sit in the living room to watch a movie. And it was Kill Bill Volume 2. I don't know that one either. It's a, it's a woman getting revenge. Oh, okay. That's kind of what that one's about, yeah. So while Cassie was giving them a tour of the basement, Brian was able to unlock the door that leads to the backyard without Cassie or Matt noticing. So there was a door out to the backyard, like a walkout Mm. basement, and he nonchalantly unlocks that door. Creepy. Before the movie was over, Brian and Tori tell Matt and Cassie that they were going to leave. They thought it was supposed to be a party and they're bored, and so they're going to go just watch a movie at the theater instead of watching one there. So dirt bag lies. That's yeah, what's happening. That's totally believable. Totally believable, but that's not their plan. Oh, we know yeah, that by the tapes, right? Of course. But I'm sure the two totally bought it. That they oh, were yeah. Why leaving. wouldn't you? Yeah. Totally. And Cassie was probably relieved that they left because she was uncomfortable with them being there anyways because she didn't want to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. The boys get into the car and they leave, but they don't go to watch a movie at the theater like they told Matt and Cassie. Instead, they park down the street a little way. While in the car, they video record themselves again. So Brian says, we're here in his car. The time is 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. Um, unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends, and they are right in in that house just down the street. Tori says, we just talked to them. We were there for an hour. But, and then Brian says, we checked out the whole house. We know there's a lot of doors. There, There's a lot of places to hide. Um, I unlocked the back doors. It's all unlocked. Now we just have to wait. And, um... Yep, we're we're really nervous right now, but, you know, we're ready. And then Tori says, we're listening to the greatest rock band ever. And Brian says, we've waited for this a long time. Tori, Pink Floyd, before we commit the ultimate crime of murder. And Brian says, we've waited for this for a long time. Tori says, a long time. And Brian says, we, well, stay tuned. Oh, so is there any indication about how long they've been planning and trying to murder people? When they're talking about a long time, a long time, is there anything that... No, we don't know how long. But they did say that they had tried multiple times previously, right? For different people. So had it been like years, months, just a couple weeks? No, later on, Brian's family say that they had only been hanging out about six weeks prior to this. Oh, so they were recent friends then? Yeah, recent friends. Oh, watch who your kids are hanging out with. Right? So they get out of the car and they put on dark costumes. They put on gloves and white plastic masks. And in my opinion, these masks were more terrifying than the scream masks. Oh, so they weren't the same ones? They weren't the same ones. But to me, they're worse. They are just like a white plastic mask. They have holes cut out for the eyes and the mouth. And they have blood painted like it's dripping from the eyes and mouth. Oh, that's creepy. They go back to the house and quietly sneak into the basement of the home through the door that Brian had unlocked without being detected. Matt and Cassie are still watching the movie upstairs. It had only been about 15 minutes since the two boys had left. Brian and Tori make a loud noise and attempts to scare Cassie and Matt and hope they will come down to the basement to investigate. When they don't come downstairs, they find the breaker box and turn off the power to the house. This starts to freak Cassie out, but they decided to just sit on the couch and wait for the power outage to be over. So there's no creepy phone call? No, but nonetheless, this freaks Cassie out. When Cassie and Matt still don't come downstairs like they had hoped, the pair turn some of the lights back on. One of the family dogs goes to the top of the basement stairs and keeps staring down them and periodically barking and growling. But Matt and Cassie still don't go down to investigate. So the dog totally knows something's up. Yeah. Cassie is rightfully freaked out at this point. So Matt calls his mom to see if he can stay the night with Cassie at her aunt and uncle's house. 
But being only 16 years old, Matt's mom says he isn't allowed. She does, however, say that Cassie can come sleep at their house if she wants and would take her back in the morning. But because Cassie is so responsible, like I mentioned, she turns down the offer. She had agreed to and was being paid by her aunt and uncle to stay at the house and take care of the pets for the entire weekend. So she didn't feel like she could leave. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're probably feeling a little bit foolish, too, right? You don't want to be a big scaredy cat. At least that... I don't want to. That's why I watch the movies. Right. And his mom would have to drive her back, too. Mm-hmm. Right? So you didn't so want to be a burden. putting them out. And then if her aunt and uncle found out that she didn't even stay there the night. Mm. At around 10.30 p.m., Matt's mom comes and picks up Matt from the house. Matt uses his cell phone to call Tori to see if they still want to hang out. Tori answers his phone from inside the house and pretends to be in the theater still. He has to whisper so Cassie won't hear him from upstairs. Which would make sense if they were in a theater. So Matt doesn't think this is strange. But all the time he's talking to Tori, he's in the basement. And how does Matt feel later when he finds out what has happened? Or his mom. I know. I know. I can't even imagine. Because they knew something was up. This just blows up so many lives. In hindsight, right? I mean, but at 16, would you let your son sleep in a house alone with his girlfriend? Oh, absolutely not. No. No. So no one's, you know, no one's at fault. It is just a perfect storm, like I said. Well, it's just the ramifications, right? Right. Of every decision. Oh. And you're not going to think that that's happening. No. They're out in the country and a power outage probably isn't the weirdest thing. No. Brian and Tori are still waiting in the basement with Cassie now all alone upstairs. The boys once again turn all the power out to the house, hoping it will make Cassie come down to check the breaker box. When she doesn't, the boys creep upstairs to find her. Both boys had a knife in hand. Brian's was a dagger type and Tori's was a hunting style. Cassie is laying in the dark on the couch. Brian opens and slams shut a door once they get upstairs to startle Cassie. They enter the living room, knives in hand and masks on their faces, and brutally stab Cassie to death. Oh! The boys flee the scene of the crime and get back into the car. And guess what they do? Oh, they videotape. Yep. The dirtbags pull out their video camera and start recording. They gotta vlog it. And this is probably the creepiest one of all of them. This recording starts at 11.31 p.m. Brian yells, Just killed Cassie! We just left her house! This is not an effing joke! Tori says, I'm shaking. Brian says, I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body. It just disappeared. Dude, I just killed Cassie. Tori says, oh my gosh. Brian says, oh, oh, F. That felt like that wasn't even real. I mean, it went by so fast. Tori says, shut the F up. We got to get our act straight. Brian says, it's okay. Okay. We will just go buy movie tickets now. Tori says, okay. Oh, that's rough. That is awful. And the way they say that about how we got to get our act straight, it's haunting. Right. What kind of people just murder somebody? And then the one guy says, I'm shaking. Well, no, duh. You've got all that adrenaline running through your system. Yeah. But then they're still with it enough to actually cover their tracks right after. Yeah. Yep. Ugh. And the investigators do find out later that they did, in fact, go and buy movie tickets to try and secure an alibi. The boys then drive out to Black Rock area and try to burn and bury the evidence. And we'll talk in detail more about what this evidence actually entailed. Um, they don't burn things fully. So I'm assuming by that, that they were just kind of panicked, like yeah. burn what we can. And then they just decided to bury it all. Okay. So the next day on Saturday, there are reports that state that Matt actually hangs out with Tori. Oh. So Tori knowing all along that he had killed Matt's girlfriend just the night before he hangs out with Matt. And they didn't have Matt and... Cassidy didn't have any plans to hang out after the like the next day, so no, nobody even found her. So she wasn't going to leave the house all weekend till Sunday. Oh. 
Matt does, however, try calling Cassie multiple times that day. And when she doesn't answer, Matt asks Tori to drive him to Cassie's aunt and uncle's house so that he can check up on her. And Tori says that he can't because he doesn't have enough gas in his car to last him the week if they drive out there. Crazy. Two days after the murder, on the evening of Sunday, September 24th, 2006, Cassie's aunt and uncle and cousins return home. Cassie's 13-year-old cousin is super excited to see her, so she runs up to the house first. She finds the door unlocked and thinks that's weird, but enters the house anyway. It is there in the living room that she finds the lifeless body of her dear cousin laying on the floor by the sofa. They call the police, and once alerted, Cassie's mother and stepfather rush to the house. I can't even imagine. That would be so awful. Mm -hmm. Cassie's brother remembers his stepfather calling him and telling him the news. He said, quote, I dropped the phone and crumbled to the ground. I didn't even know how to process it. Because remember, they were best friends. Yeah. The house becomes a crime scene. The Bannock County Sheriff's Office put the family up in a hotel room for two weeks while they investigate. The sheriff even helps cover the family's insurance deductible to clean the house after the scene had been processed. And from what I read, it was not a pleasant sight. Oh, what a good guy, though. Police noticed that there wasn't any forced entry, which suggested that Cassie let the attacker in and likely knew them. They also noticed that the rest of the house seems to be undisturbed, which ruled out robbery as a motive. An autopsy is performed. Cassie was brutally stabbed 30 times in the neck, chest, back, and abdomen. She also had defensive wounds on her hands and arms, so she fought. Of the 30 stab wounds, 9 to 12 of them were deemed fatal. That's just brutal. Mm-hmm. Wow. It was just a frenzy. They probably had so much adrenaline and just kept stabbing. They probably didn't even know what they were doing at that point. No. Well, maybe they did because they knew to cover it up. After. Well, they just crossed that line. And once yeah. they started, yeah, I don't even know what goes through your mind. The police's first thought is to interrogate Matt, Cassie's boyfriend, because he was the last person to see her alive. Oh, for sure. Matt tells them everything he knew about the night in question. He tells them about how Tori and Brian had come over. He tells police that he was better friends with Tori than Brian, but that they were all friends. Matt said both Brian and Tori each had shown interest previously in Cassie and both had flirted with her in the past. So they liked her. There was no vendetta against her. The police check his phone records and see that he was truthful so far. His parents confirm his alibi, and it doesn't take long for the police to conclude that Matt was not responsible for Cassie's murder, so he was no longer a suspect. How come your parents didn't call her? Sorry, I'm going off on the side now. And I don't know if they did or didn't. I think I gave them a call. Yeah, but this was 1996. You know, you know where she's at. It's true. She's at a family member's house. house. Yeah. Well, and there wouldn't be any cell phones, right? Yeah. Well, no, because he did have a cell phone because Matt calls Tori after he leaves the house on. So he did have a cell phone. But it was just a different time. Not to lay any blame on the parents No, and they might have called. Maybe they called and she didn't answer and they thought maybe she's taking the dogs for a walk. This is not where your mind is going to go to right away. It's where our minds go to. Ours, but the average person is probably not going to. The average person doesn't assume that when somebody doesn't pick up their phone that they're murdered. Right. Or the guy in front of you in McDonald's is going to stab you on the way to your car. On September 25th, the day after Cassie had been found, the police bring Tori and Brian in for questioning. They were put in separate rooms to be interrogated. The boys tell the police that they left Matt and Cassie and went to a movie. They had the movie stubs, but neither one of them could answer any specific questions regarding the movie, about what it was about, or even who was in the movie. Uh-huh, they didn't do their research enough. <laughs> nope. And it's... Gotta dig deep, boys. Dig exactly. deep. <laughs> and because they are self-proclaimed movie buffs... And they're all into like movies and making Mm -hmm. movies and stuff. So it made it even worse that they just says, well, I can't remember. I can't remember. It was totally out of character for them. Right. Because the police are like, what's this about? I don't remember. 
well, who played in it? Can you name an actor? Oh, I don't remember. And it was just the night before. Super suspicious. Or a few nights before. Not the night before, but a few nights before. Yeah. Super suspicious. Mm -hmm. Police questioned a classmate who worked at the theater, and she said she never saw them there on the night in question. After repeated questioning, it became harder and harder for the boys to keep their stories straight, and they began to stumble. After two days of questioning, Brian finally cracks and partly confesses to the police. Both boys are arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. And so Brian and Tori immediately start blaming each other for being the one who killed Cassie. And that's why I said he partly confessed. Right. Because he said, well, Tori killed her. Because if you can make enough reasonable doubt. Right. But there's no reasonable doubt because Brian leads investigators to Black Rock Canyon to show them where they tried to burn and bury the evidence. And there's pictures online of some of it. So you can actually see the partially burned masks that they wore and that kind of stuff. So I am going to read what they found. Okay. I just thought it was interesting, the things that they buried there. What the boys thought was evidence that they needed to cover up. Right. Black boots, blue rubber gloves, workout fingerless gloves, a melted bottle of hydrogen peroxide, a multicolored mask, a large dagger type knife with a sheath, a silver and black handled knife, a small dagger type knife with a sheath, a Sony videotape, which is how we get all these transcripts and videos, a serrated folding knife with Cassie's DNA on it. Why are you laughing? Because I think it's ridiculous that they think that burning a knife is going to... Well, I think they were trying to burn the other stuff. <laughs> and just and let then, their And then there. bury the stuff. Oh, okay. They thought it was going to be okay all buried. Well, maybe they thought it would get rid of the DNA. And I don't oh, know... maybe. And I don't know if they buried it the same place they burned it. If you burn something, does it get rid of blood stains or DNA? I don't know. They didn't do a very good job anyways. No. Okay. Yeah. I'll, sorry. I'll let you continue on with the list. Okay. So there was a serrated folding knife with Cassie's DNA on it. A partially burned handwritten note, which by what they could read from it was the note that they were writing about killing Cassie. A white and red mask with Tori's DNA on it. A single black glove with unknown male DNA. A pair of partially burned black gloves with Cassie's dried blood soaked into them. There was a blue plastic garbage bag. Two partially burned dress shirts with one of them having Cassie's blood on the cuff. A sock and a small piece of black cord. So that's what they found that they had buried. So a lot of those things they didn't even use. Yeah. They were super prepared. Good Boy Scouts. Yep. Well, they had planned it, like they said, for a long time. I think you should look up the mask. I'll look up the mask. But sorry, I'm just looking up. Can you destroy DNA evidence with thermal exposure? It has to be really, really hot. Okay. But these are 16-year-old boys. They don't know that. They're not thinking properly anyways by even doing this. So even with this evidence, Tori sticks to his story of not participating in killing Cassie. Brian finally admits that they both engaged in the stabbing, but says Tori made him. Tori insisted that it was all Brian's idea, and Tori thought that they were only going to try and scare Cassie. He said that he thought it was a joke up until the moment that Brian actually started stabbing her, so he left the house and waited at the car. He said he thought they were only making a scary movie like the Scream film, and this is why they wore masks and had the knives. But if he thought they were making a film, why were they not recording during the murder? Exactly. So I'm calling BS on that. Sorry, Tori. Brian and Tori were tried separately. An 18-year-old man testified that he had purchased knives for the two boys just weeks before the murder from a pawn shop. He asked them if they had planned to hurt anyone, but they told him that they had a knife collection. And allegedly, Tori did. He had one in his closet at home. Of course he did. Because he's Mm -hmm. that creepy guy. Yep. Those masks are awful. Yeah, Melissa just looked up the mask. Isn't it way more terrifying than the movie? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's bad. I just can't even imagine what Cassie went through asleep on the couch in the dark and wakes up to that. That is so awful. Tori's defense tried to use the reasoning that Tori was more immature and that his frontal brain lobe wasn't fully developed yet, making him younger than he was developmentally. His defense said Tori needed mental health care rather than prison time to heal and mature. Tori's mother, Shannon, believed everything he was saying. She insisted that Tori would never do anything like this. He was affectionate and that he led a sheltered life with little exposure to the seedier side of life. She is quoted saying to the judge, quote, I pray that you will see the difference between these two boys, Judge McDermott. Please give us something to salvage out of this. The videotape was played during both trials. The evidence was presented and the coroner confirmed that Cassie's wounds were made with more than one knife. So it couldn't have been just one of them. We have two hands. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's true, though. I could double fist it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> just even what that's making me envision. Stop. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But in all honesty, you could hold a knife in each hand. You could. So was there more than two knives? That's what I want to know. Well, they found more than two knives. There are more than two stab wound patterns. The coroner had confirmed that the wounds were made with more than one knife. That's not helpful. No, sorry. That's all you get. Okay. I'll live with it. (laughs) And which mother is going to say, oh yeah, I totally believe my son could do it. Oh, she's a piece of work. Just wait. We're going to talk more about her. That's not the end of talking about his mother. Okay. On April 17th, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of the charges against him. Tori Adamchik was found guilty of the same charges on June 8th, 2007, because they were tried separately. Both were given a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 30 years to life for being convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. Good. Yep. And Tori and Brian are both still incarcerated at the Idaho State Correctional Institution. Oh, they're together? They're at the same institution. You think you'd want to split them up? Well, I think they only have probably one jail. I was surprised to hear that too, actually, that they were both together, but I don't know if they're on separate wings, like separate areas, if they ever do get to see each other. I don't know. Well, I was going to say, why do you want two friends just hanging out at jail together? But maybe they're not friends after throwing each other under the bus. Yeah, I don't think. I don't know. They probably didn't remain friends. Probably not for long. Well, actually, that might be a lie because I did read one report where they were taken to jail, I think, together in the same vehicle and they were talking in the back seat, like catching up like old friends. Oh, so creepy. They need to be in different facilities. But maybe it's working. I don't know. I haven't heard any problems from it, but I just thought that was strange as well. And maybe because they were 16, if they kept them both in Idaho, then their families could come visit them and that kind of stuff. So I don't know if that played any factor into it, either keeping them close to their families. Well, there's probably a definite reason why they're together. And I always hate that defense of, oh, well, I didn't have the mental capabilities of telling. Oh, yeah. And I think Tori was fine. There was nothing else to suggest that he had any developmental issues. So it wasn't like the Adam Lanza case where there was like miles and miles of evidence of trying to get help and like all these school reports. So are you guys that were doing these cases in September, right? As your kids are all going back to school. Brutal. So Brian and Tori have since used up all of their appeals to no avail. Good. I get the idea of appeals, but I just think it's so horrible that the families then have to go through that all over again. Because every time there's an appeal coming up, they have to make a case of why these guys can't get out again. And her family does talk about that, which I mentioned. Okay, I'm jumping the gun again. No, that's okay. Brian was more accepting of his punishment. Tori was not. Tori was still claiming his innocence. Tori's parents are adamant that their son is being wrongfully punished. 
they are still behind him 100% emotionally as well as financially. So they don't think he did it at all? No. Even with the recordings and everything that's like the evidence? Yep. And I'm going to talk more too about what she says. Okay. Because Tori's mom, like I said, piece of work. She even went as far as to write a book about her son's innocence and the horrible ordeal that he had to endure being tried as an adult. The book is titled The Guilty Innocent. In her book, she writes, quote, I refuse to believe that Tori could die in prison for his role in what happened to Cassie. It simply isn't justice, and our justice system cannot allow it to happen. Well, I'm sure Cassie's parents feel that it would be awful to let him out. Yeah. Right? Like, just the same oh, as exactly. Oh. However, they both do have some hope. Because in 2012, the United States Supreme Court ruled that mandatory sentences of life without parole are unconstitutional for juvenile offenders, even in the case of murder. What do you think of that? Do you agree? Listeners, do you agree? Should they have the chance of parole at least? Well, you look at the Mary Bell case. Mary Bell, yeah. Yeah, look at the Mary Bell case and it looks like she was actually rehabilitated. Yeah. So maybe they should have a chance, but I don't know. These guys are dirtbags. Yeah, but all this is saying is that they should have the chance of parole. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, Yeah, that it shouldn't be mandatory with life without the possibility of parole. I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, and I I kind of felt the same way. Yeah. I've never been in that situation though. Yeah, if I, I was I Cassie's feel parents. Yeah, if I was a family member, I might feel very differently. Yeah. So Lock then, them up, throw away the key. Exactly. So then four years later in 2016, the Supreme Court further ruled that this had to be applied to cases retroactively, and all cases should be reviewed nationwide of juveniles who received life without parole sentences. So this means between, from what I could read, between 1,200 and possibly more than 2,000 cases would need to be re-examined. Their case will eventually be re-examined. And this is where they have a little bit of hope. And they're doing this because they believe that children who commit even heinous crimes are capable of change. They're hoping for rehabilitation. Yeah. So, but from what I've read, they haven't gotten to their case yet. That might take a long time. Could be more than 2,000 cases. And they all have to be re-examined and see should they have the possibility of parole scary that there's that many juvenile delinquents. That's what I thought. When the boys were 21, they, along with their parents, participated in a documentary. It's called Lost for Life, and it's fantastic. You can just go on YouTube and watch it if you want. It's about juveniles incarcerated for murder charges. And I'm going to give you a little brief overview of what each of them said. Maybe they've grown up a little bit. Well, one of them has. Was it Tori? Nope. I didn't think so. Tori still says he's innocent. Well, because he's not mature enough. Well, he is now. He was then. Mature enough to do the crime. Mature enough to do the time. So Brian, in the documentary, he seems genuinely remorseful. Like, I don't even think it's an act. I think he really is remorseful for his actions. He has a hard time even talking about Cassie, and he openly admits his guilt. He's just come full clean. He brings up an interesting point. He says he doesn't know if either of them would have done it alone. He says they were a formula for disaster and that they fed off of one another. So kind of almost like that mob mentality. So you had asked this question at the beginning and Brian is saying, I don't think either of us wouldn't have done this if we weren't together. I don't know. I'm always just a little bit skeptical of these remorse statements after the fact, because this is a guy that studied movies and was a total movie buff. That was Tori. Tori was the bigger movie buff. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, maybe he's just playing us. 
I don't think so. No, I honestly don't. And I'm usually the first one to call someone a dirtbag. And I, I mean, they are, but you believed him. I believed him that he was remorseful about it. Yeah. Because he's taking, you know, he's taking the blame. He says, yeah, I'm guilty. I did it. He even says like, I deserve to be in here for 30 years. You know, Mm. like he's not, I don't don't think he has an ulterior motive for saying these things. So he's not trying to use it as a defense to get out for his next appeal. No, he says like, I do deserve to be incarcerated for 30 years. Okay. Type of a thing, right? Brian says he owes Cassie a debt and that the first way to start is by telling exactly what happened to her. He says he must have a consequence. He talks about Tori saying Tori and so they must see each other because he says Tori is still on day one and hasn't progressed at all. He says you need to start by admitting what you did. Brian claims that he is haunted by how Cassie died. He still has nightmares and he cuts himself to try and take away the pain. He is tormented over it. And he actually shows like on his legs and stuff, all his cut marks. I know. I'm having a hard time feeling sad for him though. Yeah. I don't feel sad for him, but I do feel like he is in a place of remorse. He's moving forward anyway. He's moving forward. Exactly. He's admitting to it. He's working through it saying, yeah, I deserve to be here. He also says that he feels bad for what he's put his loving parents through and he wishes he could go back in time. Tori, on the other hand, is an entirely different story and it's infuriating Like to watch them in this documentary, him and his parents. Tori's parents talk about how they visit him in jail and how he's always been such a good kid. They say people are trying to just lump him together with Brian and Tori has only, oh, and this is where they say that Tori had only started hanging out with Brian six weeks prior to the murder. Tori says he was stupid at 16 and is now paying for someone else's mistakes. Because he didn't take part at all. Right. His dad says it's harder for Tori because he's innocent but still has to face it. His parents keep interjecting when Tori is speaking and they kind of talk for him. And I just think they're delusional, in my opinion. And I think Tori is still trying to hide his involvement from his parents. Crazy. Maybe though, I don't know, that's an escalation of commitment though. Once you've decided that your child's innocent, you have to keep with that story. Well, she even went as far as to write a book. Like she wholeheartedly believes But what's the alternative for her is to accept that her son's a murderer. Yeah. But we all know those parents that are like, not my kid. My kid would never do that. That's the other kid's fault. Yeah. Yeah. Please. In my opinion, sometimes parents like that are just as bad as the kids, right? If they won't even like try to recognize when their kids are doing things that they shouldn't. To me, it's just validating Tori. Yeah. And because of that, he still, he refuses to admit even having part of the killing. He says... And this part annoyed me too. He says that he has ambitions and things he would be doing, but instead he has to stay in prison and watch himself rot. What about Cassie's ambitions, Tori? Yeah. What about hers? And do they really think people are going to feel sorry for him? Like, should we? No. No. He's a dirtbag. Exactly. And then I did find other reports that wasn't in this documentary. I think it was in another documentary that indicated that Tori had also had child porn on his computer and he was extremely cruel to animals, especially killing cats. And so he is the bigger dirtbag, in my opinion. And just have the decency to tell the truth. Yeah. Like enough. Don't be a dirtbag and tell the truth. Right. And that's where I feel like Brian has a little bit more redeeming qualities because he's totally owning up to it, saying, you know, we did this unspeakable thing and we shouldn't have, and I'm sorry. And then Tori's still just like, nope, I have to sit here and rot because of what Brian did and it's all his fault. So I was just curious kind of what everyone will think about this. How much do you think that movies and things like video games influence what our children do? Like, can that affect their brains? Can that, like, desensitize them? I think for sure it can desensitize them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's an excuse to go out and murder somebody. It's not, definitely. And do you think Tori is innocent, like he claims? No. No, I don't either. 
Even Sorry. if you think that Brian had two <laughs> knives and Tori had none. <laughs> I don't think Tori is innocent at all. And I would be shocked and surprised, but interested to hear if any of our listeners do think that Tori, maybe you've read the book. Maybe you've, you followed this. Maybe you do think he is. And if you do, let us know and let us know why you think that. Yeah, definitely know it. Let us know why you the think why. Definitely. So before I end, I want to give a quick update on Cassie's family. I didn't really want to end on these two. Understandably, everyone who knew and loved Cassie had had a hard time dealing with her death. Oh, for sure. And especially your little cousin that found her. I'm going to let you know what happened with her. So sad. Oh, yeah. That would be traumatic. So in 2010, the Stoddard family filed a civil suit against the Idaho School District, claiming that the school was negligent and should have known the threat that Brian and Tori posed to the other students. But how? Exactly. And understandably, both the civil court and the Supreme Court dismissed this case, saying the actions were not foreseeable. And I do agree with that. Yeah, it would be hard to prove, I think. Mm -hmm. Cassie's aunt and uncle, Allison and Frank, and their children have had an extremely difficult time dealing with the aftermath. The house was repaired after the murder, but the family never went back into the living room where Cassie was murdered. Please tell me they moved. Frank says there is a sense of sadness that impacted his entire family. Each one of them claimed to have had an encounter with Cassie in the house after her death. Oh. Mm -hmm. Allison fell into a huge depression and lost her job. So Frank had to get a second job to compensate. Allison's medications alone were $300 a month, just adding to their expenses. They tried to sell the house, but were unable when people found out what happened there. The 13-year-old cousin who found her suffered a breakdown after finding Cassie, and it was reported that she had attempted suicide. Oh, Mm -hmm. the effects are so far reaching. So far reaching. And like you said earlier, they had to relive the murder with each appeal to the courts. Yeah. On a brighter note, I did hear that the family was eventually able to sell their house. But Good I saw, real estate agent. I know. I saw conflicting reports on that, though. Oh. So I'm not 100% sure, but I really hope this is true. Hopefully they were able to move. Hopefully. Because th- that would be so awful to be strapped yeah. without. Because who has the extra money just to go buy a new house? Right. And they kept lowering. They lowered the price so that it just would pay what they owed. They weren't. Oh. They didn't even want to make any money off of it. And just it was sad because it, it was their dream home. They talked about how this was their dream home. They finally got into their house that they wanted to stay in for the rest of their lives and no way there's no way i could stay no me either so i hope that they did sell it cassie's brother has made a few statements saying that he can never forgive his sister's killers and every time they go to court for another appeal the wounds are reopened he said everything felt dark for a long time and the loss eventually did give him some life perspective he said quote it makes you appreciate things a lot more. You never know how fragile life is. You never know how easy it is for someone to be gone the next day. So true. What a mature statement. Yeah. Go kiss your family, listeners. One last quote from her brother. He says, quote, we love her. It's always going to be a part of us. It's not like it's ever going to go away. It's always on the back of our minds, but we focus on keeping our family strong instead of focusing on the bad. We focus on the good. And when she was still around, nobody should ever have to go through this. Amen, little brother. Amen. So this is the tragic and senseless murder case of two teenage boys who decided it would be fun to make a real life slasher film come to life. I just think it's more proof that we should not be watching horror movies. (laughs) (laughs) They're bad. (laughs) I... I don't know. What would the percentage of people who actually would do, you know, use a horror oh, movie for to sure. like, it's go not and commit the horror. a crime? 
for sure. It's not the horror movies. It's the obsession. And that's what I do find sometimes, like I've read with some other serial killers, is they become obsessed with other serial killers. Mm. Like these guys had talked in the transcripts too about some of the other killers and were making jokes about what some of these other killers had done. I chose not to read those parts, but there's a difference between an interest for entertainment you know, watching a scary movie and then becoming obsessed. Yeah. They took it to a whole nother level. Right. We're interested in true crime and what makes people become dirtbags and do these heinous things, but we're not taking notes and planning. Well, I take our notes. own murders. <laughs> well, we do take notes, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right. We're not planning our own murders. No. And I feel like for me, the more that I research, the more uneasy I even feel about murder because we see how this comes in real life. Oh, for sure. And how much it affects everybody else. All right, listeners, go to our social media and let us know. Do you think Tori was innocent? Remember to like and follow us so you don't miss out on any of our Buried Motives news. We love hearing from you. Yeah, let us know what you think. And next week, we will be back. You won't have to wait long. Melissa has another story for us. Oh, and it's a good one. I'm excited to tell it. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us. We love it. We love you and have a wonderful week. Bye. already sometimes it's really hard for me to focus squirrel <laughs> totally <laughs> Idaho. Idaho. i don't know Idaho. <laughs> it's gonna be a wild ride <laughs> you can cut all this out after they're working from the depths of hell not from the, that didn't come from their heart <laughs> she lived with her mom and step bat step bad step bad it's bad dad <laughs> Yeah, Bat Dad. It was not Bat Dad. It was Stepdad. There's my phone again. Hi, Mom. My sister. Stupid motorcycle. Motorcycle just went by. I'm going to get this ready because my papers make noise. Just go Google it. Yeah, go Google. Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.